Hi, this is Ruth Friedman, and I serve as the Maharat at Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C., and welcome back to my weekly Parsha podcast, Life Imitates Torah. This week, we start a new book with the reading of Parsha Devarim. Um, and what I wanted to do today is spend just a few minutes talking about Devarim as a whole, um, and then using a couple of examples from our Parsha to try to illustrate that point, because Devarim especially, it's important for all of the five books to zoom out and consider what is the goal of this sefer within the Torah. But I think Devarim is the most important book to do that for, um, especially because there are different approaches to understanding what the role of Devarim is in the Torah. Now, what I mean by that is, Devarim is very clearly opens with, this is what Moshe's speech is, to the people on the eve of their entering the land. The first four books of the Torah have been the stories of, and the stories and the laws as understood traditionally, at least, we won't get into different perspectives, but as understood to be what God has communicated to Moshe to be recorded, right? These are books of divine source. Everything that happens is because of God. It is, directly divinely communicated. Devarim, on the other hand, is a bit more complicated because what it really is, is Moshe speaking to the people. And like I said, there are different approaches for what we do with that because a lot of Devarim is Moshe retelling some of the laws that are given earlier in the Torah and some of the stories that are given earlier in the Torah. But depending on how you understand that, it really affects how you how you decide what to do with this material. Now, what do I mean by this exactly? Let's say your understanding of Devarim is that this is not simply Moshe's way of telling over the material, but it is part of the God-given Torah that is the first four books. Then you get approaches like Rashi's and others when looking at this text. So, for example, one of the first stories in that's in this parsha, um, that's in this book, is Moshe tells the people the story of what happened with the spies. And if you look at a lot of the mafarshim, the commentary on these stories, both in the original account of the story in Sefer Bamidbar and also in the retelling, what you see is that many of the mafarshim understand the material that is in the Devarim to be part of what happened in that original story. And that you can take from the Devarim version and use that to help our understanding of what happened in Bamidbar. Because according to that perspective, both are factual recountings of what happened. And therefore, what you're doing is taking two different factual reports and synthesizing them to be as comprehensive as possible. So you have as much of a perspective as possible. <coughs> Excuse me, still got the stinking cold. So you have as much of an understanding as possible of what this particular story looked like, of what really happened. Now, Classically, an example of that would be in the original story of the spies, God says, Shlach lecha anashim, send for yourself people, right? And, and, and then there's all the questions of what does it mean, Shlach lecha, send for yourself? Is it something that God is commanding? Is it something that Moshe is asking? Is it something God is commanding but passive aggressively, etc.? But if you look at the version in next week's parsha, 
in the beginning of the third Aliyah, Moshe says, You all came to me, right? And you said, let us send men before us to go, you know, reconnoiter the land, etc., etc., etc. So if you're going to see this version as being the same as the version in Bamidbar, then you're going to say, ah, oh, in Bamidbar, it's a little unclear where Hashem says, Shlachacha. But now in Zavarim, we see that what happened is the people asked for, um, the, they requested these spies. And so God is saying, fine, Moshe, if you think that's a good idea, you can send them. And so we're synthesizing those two versions to get a bigger, to get the best picture possible of what happened. So that's one approach to understanding Zavarim. But if there's another approach, and, and this happens to be my approach, some of you have probably heard me say this many times already. Um, this is an approach also really um, articulated beautifully um, by Michal Goodman in his book, Neum Acharon Moshe, The Last uh, Speech of Moshe, in which he also looks at this as, what if Devarim is not just the fifth book of the Torah in that it is the same, it should be treated the same as the first four books, excuse me, what if it's a different beast entirely? And what if we really take it sort of at face value and say, yeah, this is Moshe speaking to the people. This is Moshe knowing that he's not going to be able to go with the people into the land of Israel and trying to figure out how on earth am I going to transmit to them all of the knowledge that I have, all of my anxieties that I have that they're going to screw it up once they get to Israel and damage their relationship with God irreparably. Because Lord knows they've come close to that many, many, many times in the Torah until now. And each day, most, <coughs> excuse me, each time most has had to jump in and save the day and convince not God not to annihilate them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's understandable that Moshe is very anxious about what's going to happen once he's out of the picture. And that's how I view Devarim, is how an anxious Moshe tries to bestow all of his knowledge and hopes for the people, um, trying to figure out how he can communicate them in a way that will maximize the likelihood that they will follow in what Hashem wants for them and not screw it up the way that they've been screwing it up until now. And so, if we think about Devarim through that lens of this is Moshe coaching the people, then you then we come to see these discrepancies between the stories in Devarim, the way he tells them, and the way they appear in their original earlier in the text, in a much different light. And so I wanted to, to consider for a moment two of the stories that are in this first Parsha, the first being the story of the spies that we just spoke about a moment ago. So if you look at the version of the story of the spies that Moshe tells in this Parsha, he is much more aggressive in blaming the people for, and, and putting the responsibility up upon them. As we said, first of all, he says, no, this was clearly something you wanted. This was your idea. This wasn't God's idea. This wasn't my idea. This was your idea. Okay, I approved it. Fine. But you came up with this. And then... He's also really aggressive in how he talks to them and how he describes their reaction to the spy's report. He says, you refused to go up. You rejected God. You were hanging out in your tents. You were being angry. You were saying terrible things. He's really dumping on them 
And then if you're listening to it, you probably kind of, you feel like a child being yelled at, right? Being scolded by a teacher, being scolded by a parent in a way that might not actually, you know, be super effective um, in terms of trying to discourage that behavior from happening again, because it is so negative. Um, he doesn't really present it as a learning experience. It's just like, you did all these bad things and here's everything that happened. And I jumped in and I saved the day. <coughs> now, I don't think our lesson from this should therefore be, well, Moshe was, you know, he's really just being kind of a jerk here. I don't, obviously, I don't think that's what's happening at all. What I think that this serves is, is an insight into Moshe's own unresolved anxieties and unresolved fears about what's going to happen to his people once he can no longer be there for them. And he's sending them out into Israel on their own. And what you see here is I think he's trying to find a way to communicate to them. You can't screw up again. You really screwed up once. This was something that was in your control and you blew it. And lucky for you, I saved the day. But I think implied is I'm not going to be there to save the day next time. So you need to figure out how to take responsibility, how to make sure that you don't do this again. You have to be on your best behavior because you really blew it last time. Don't think you don't have the capacity to screw up. You really do. Again, is that the most effective tool? I don't know. Well, it's debatable, but Moshe is still a human being. He's not perfect. And this is how he chooses to communicate it to them. But you see, just as he's negative there, he's also much more positive a little bit later in the Parsha, specifically in the fifth Aliyah. He's telling over to the people what happens when they approach the territory of Seir, which is the Edom territory, the descendants of Asa, Yaakov's brother. Now, this originally also happens, <coughs> excuse me, in Bamidbar, and they send a message to, to the Edomites and they say, listen, we've been on this journey. Here's all the terrible things that happened. Can we please cross through your land? We promise we won't touch anything. We'll pay you for any water. Like we won't touch anything. Please, please, please just let us walk through the land. And nope, Esau, they come out against him. I mean, Esau's dead, but <coughs> his descendants come out against him with the sword and say, no, it's a sad story. It is certainly not an empowering story. It, not a feel good story at all. How does Moshe tell it over in the fifth Aliyah in this Parsha? He says, all right, we said time to go up and we had got to cross through the territory of your kinsmen, the descendants of Esau, right, who sit in Seir. Then he says something amazing. He says, they will be very afraid of you, but you still need to be careful not to provoke them. Right? Don't provoke them. Don't don't agitate. Don't 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 engage with them. And then Moshe continues: whatever you eat, you're gonna pay. And even the water you drink, you're gonna pay them for that. Because Hashem has blessed you and you have always had everything. Okay. You can just, if you're not really paying attention, we can easily just you know skim through these few verses and say, all right, fine, Moshe's just going through the details. But whoa, wait a minute. Moshe is saying to them, you guys then pass through, or we tried to pass through the territory of your brothers, right? Or whatever. And I told you, they're going to be really scared of you. And so you have to be careful not to provoke them. 
And even he doesn't really mention, he doesn't actually get into the fact that Asav said no. He makes it seem like they came in, they knew that that, Ace, uh, that Adamites were going to be really, really afraid of them. So they were very respectful of Adamite space, paid for the food, paid for the water, and then moved on. It's a very selective and at times factually incorrect way of retelling the story. Now, why does he do that here? What is he saying to the people in the way that he retells this? He's giving them a whole lot more power and more stature than they had in the original story. In the original story, they said, please, we'll be able, they belittle themselves and still sit here and said, no. Here, they're the powerful ones. They were the ones who to make sure not to scare the Edomites. They were the ones who were so powerful and so strong. And they were the ones who then had to be honest, had to be especially careful to make sure not to scare the Edomites. And there's no mention of, oh, and they came against you with the sword. So what is going on here? What I would suggest is going on here is that Moshe is recognizing that a situation like with the Edomites was totally out of the Israelites' control. They gave as gentle a proposition as possible to the Edomites. Could we just cross through? We won't touch anything. We won't stray from the path. We, you know, we won't take any food or water, nothing. And still, they got as harsh a response as possible, short of being massacred, which is they came out with the sword and they said, no. That's a very disempowering story to have. That's not a story. If you're trying to pump up people up, that's not a story you tell them right before they enter the land. But it's also not a story he chooses to ignore. He just very selectively and delicately and carefully retells it in a way that flips the power dynamic. That the Israelites are now the ones who are scary and the Edomites are the ones who are scared of them. And what the Israelites now have to remember is don't scare other people, right? Remember that you yourselves are powerful. And so you have to make sure to be respectful of other people. And that's what happens here. And when he tells it like that, it goes from being a story that's just going to remind the Israelites that they're meager, they're small, and they're going to be dealing with a lot of, of nations that are just going to you know, oppress them no matter what and say no, no matter what, turns it into something where it says, no, you guys are strong, right? And because you're so strong, you have to be really careful. That's how I would tell my five-year-old to be careful with our 15 pound dog, right? You're so much bigger than her. She's scared of you, et cetera, right? If that's how you communicate to a people um, to, to make them feel more comfortable in themselves, more confident in themselves, than if I just told my five-year-old, the dog is scared of you, you know, leave her alone. That's not how you say it. That's not effective. I'm pumping him up to encourage him to, you know, be careful, be delicate, be respectful, et cetera. And so the reason I wanted to bring these two examples, both of the story of the spies and the way that Moshe retells it, and the story of the Edomites and how Moshe retells it, to show that Moshe here, he's, to first of all, advance the point that I really think Moshe is engaging in a very specific strategy of trying to selectively retell these stories in a way that's going to maximize the potential of the Israelites to go into the land of Israel successfully and to maintain the relationship with God successfully, but also to appreciate the sensitivity he is exercising. Sometimes, as I'm sure we'll discuss over the coming weeks, I think he goes too far. But what he's really trying to do is, in a situation that is under the Israelites' control, like the way they handled the situation of the spies, say, you guys screwed up. Don't do it again. Right? The more they feel they can control the fact that they screwed up, the more you feel empowered to not do it again. But in a situation where it wasn't under their control, 
He's going to try to boost them up as much as possible and say, yeah, they were scared of you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that way he's trying to preserve their sense of self and their confidence while also keeping them humble at the same time. And it's actually a pretty beautiful and brilliant strategy. Um, and one that we need to make sure we understand the book of Devarim appropriately so that we can really properly appreciate what he's trying to do in this book. Shabbat Shalom.